This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Stephen Kotler, Executive Director of the Flow Research Collective and one of the world's leading experts on human performance. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author who has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. His books include The Future is Faster Than You Think, Bold, Abundance, The Rise of Superman, and Stealing Fire. And he's also an award-winning journalist who has appeared in over 100 publications, including The New York Times Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Time, Wired, and Forbes. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. You know, one of the reasons I was super interested to speak with you is the work that we do at the Alpha Human Podcast in trying to better understand the fire that burns in those who work and whose performance uh, demands that they pursue the limits of their potential. So one big focus for us is the special operations community, the Navy SEALs, Delta Force, Green Berets, tier one operators who push the envelope as the Olympians of the military. So to start us off here, uh, can you tell us a bit about how you got into working in the area of human performance, human optimization? Started it's a long it's a long time ago uh, in the uh, 1990s. Mm-hmm. I was a journalist, and it was uh, I covered a lot of different things, predominantly focused on on science. And I like to be outside, so I was really interested in what were then so-called extreme sports. Now we talk about them as action sports, right? Surfing, skiing, right. snowboarding, etc., and the like. And back then these were new things, right? Like the X games was just starting the gravity games. Nobody really knew what they were. Journalists didn't know what they were. They just knew that people cared. So if you could ride and ski or ride and rock climb or any of that stuff, there was work. And, you know, I couldn't do any of that stuff really well, but I needed the work. So I lied to my editors and, you know, spent the better portion of a decade chasing uh, professional athletes around mountains and across oceans. And um, along the way, the level of performance at the elite level kept going up and up and up at a rate nobody had ever seen before. And in context, more impossible feats, things that people said, this is never gonna happen, we're never gonna do this, it's not, it's not actually physically possible, sort of fell in a 10 year period than ever before in the history of sport. And I had a front row seat to it. And it wasn't, that alone was astounding. Right. It was it was amazing. And it wasn't even that, you know, you'd see stuff that was considered impossible, not just being done, but being iterated upon very, very quickly. And it caught my attention for the obvious reasons. Right. Like surfing went from ski surfing 25 foot waves to 100 foot waves in a very short period of time. Snowboarders went from jumping off 50 foot cliffs to jumping off 250 foot cliffs in a very short period of time. And if you see any of that stuff up close and personal, it looks like magic, right? It doesn't look actually possible. Yeah. I want to know this, why was this happening? And more, maybe not more importantly, but as interestingly to me, most of the people, these were my friends. I was living in Squaw Valley. I knew all, I knew these people in this community. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were, um, came from really rough childhoods, broken homes, very little education, not much money. And yet, this completely disadvantaged group of people on a regular basis were redefining the limits of, my spe- of the species. So that, like trying to understand why that was happening is where it started. And it, by that point, I broke a lot of bones, a massive amount of bones um, along the way, because I'm not a professional athlete. And if you chase professional athletes around mountains, you're gonna break shit. And I broke a lot of shit. And after about 70 broken bones, I realized that I, like as fascinated as I was with this question of how does the impossible become possible, I had to get out of action sports or I was going to kill myself very clearly. <laughs> and so I took this question into, you know, a lot of other domains. I, in the beginning, it was, it was domains that I was really interested in, arts, I was trained as a writer, science, technology. But then I started expanding outward and looking at business and looking at, you know, altruism and every walk of life I could find. And, um, you know, lucky for me, whenever you see the impossible become possible, you always see a number of things, but you always see a state of consciousness known to researchers as flow. 
which is an optimal state of performance where we feel our best and we perform our best. So saying it shows up when the impossible becomes possible is sort of tautological, right? Like, of course it does. This is the thing that evolution gave us to perform at our best. And of course it's showing up in those situations, but that is sort of how it started. And flow has been, you know, it's 20 some years later and it's, you know, sort of been at the center of my life's work. It's, it's the center of the research we do at the Flow Research Collective and, mm -hmm. and everything like that. So um, yeah, a fascinating uh, path to getting into this. Uh, and, uh, you know, too bad it, it took you 70 broken bones to kind of get there. But um, the, the concept you talk about, flow, you also describe as ecstasis uh, and and so, uh, let me let me let me let me let me let me clarify a little bit. So okay. um, I don't describe it as ecstasis. First of all, the okay. ancient Greeks talked about it as ecstasis, right? And they did not have separate. We have a lot of divisions, right? When, when mm -hmm. you study kind of the phenomenon of altered states and the bandwidth of human experience at the, at the kind of the upper level, um, they called up, you know, they called things were mystical experiences. They were peak experiences or they were right. Ecstasis was sort of like everything from flow that mm -hmm. athletes would get into all the way to kind of trance states and things in, in all kinds of other kind of religious rituals and so forth. It, uh, that, and that term sort of held up until the early 20th century. And then around the turn of the century, it just splintered into a hundred different subdivisions of which flow is, is one particular subset. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. It, but there's just, obviously there's this, you know, this overall compendium of which flow is poor. Yeah, so if you, right? if you look, you know, when we, you talk about, I, I, the, the term I've been using, I often use to describe it is, is there's a whole swatch of experiences that are north of happy, right? These okay. like, off-flow trance states, you know, psychedelic states, speaking in tongues, you know, on and on and on into the mystical states. Um, you know, I, so my early mentor in this work is a guy named Dr. Andrew Newberg. He was at the University of Pennsylvania for a very long time. He's now at Jefferson University, but he uh, pioneered the use of the tools of neuroscience, specifically fMRI, to examine the brains of Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns. He was interested in this question, of why do people meditate and feel one with everything? Shows up in every culture on earth and every you know, time frame on earth. And he said, God, it's too prevalent to be a hallucination doesn't make sense. So let me take a look at it. Let's see if there's biology underneath this experience. And that's an experience that's very common in flow. People, surfers talk about becoming one with the waves, right? Um, and uh, football players become one with their team, climbers become one with the mountains and so forth, very common. And um, he had figured out why that happens. And we can talk about the science if you care, but he figured out why that happens. Mm -hmm. And we started to realize why it was happening in, in people experiencing flow. But my, my point is that there is a 20 some year history of people looking at so-called mystical experiences, right? right? And we have learned a great deal. Um, in fact, there's very few experiences you can now name that we don't actually understand some or all of the biology underneath. And the ones that you can name that we don't, I'm inclined to say we're not looking at something real um, or our measurement technology isn't rubbed to smack. I'm open to either, but like, you know what I mean? That we found so much stuff. But my point is that when you look at all of these North Happy experiences, you see very specific changes in brain function and they overlap, right? So. Well, it sounds like a flow state, right? That the seals would get into in combat and a mystical experience that some Tibetan Buddhists would get in high on a mountaintop. They seem radically different and they are on a certain level, but neurobiologically, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities. Right. In the, in the end though, these are all altered states, right? So, you know, get, you're getting out of your head um, you're getting outside of, outside of the self, and um, certainly in your book, uh, Stealing Fire, which I absolutely love, um, altered states play, a, you talk about how altered states play a large but often hidden role in our lives, 
and we're kind of driven to pursue these these states often uh, at a very steep cost, uh, usually because we're we don't know why we're pursuing them, um, and it's usually impulsive, it's haphazard, and it, it's kind of in a destructive manner many times. Why why are we so driven um, to to our own destruction in 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 many cases? So I I. I... I would say a fraction of the cases is to our own destruction, right? If you look at the spectrum, we did a, we did a calculation in, in Stealing Fire, which I'm sure you're familiar with. We looked at what's called the so-called altered state economy. How much money do people spend heading out of their heads, right? And it's an enormous sum of money. It's one sixteenth of the global economy, about $4 trillion, $5 trillion a year. Yes, there is a fraction of that that is addictive behavior, right? Drug addiction, things along those lines. But that's a small fraction of a huge, you know, like where the thinking behind that particular calculation came from and why we, I did that research is I was talking to a good friend of mine, Salim Ismail. He's uh-huh. at Singularity University, the first executive director of Singularity University. He's the former kind of director of innovation at Yahoo. And we were, he's also, he's, he's worked on flow in business for a lot of years. And he said, just looked at me, he said, you know, you think about it. Every time you go to see a sporting event, Mm-hmm. you're paying to see somebody in flow. Anytime you go to the movies, you're playing to see an actor in flow. If you go to a poetry reading, you're hoping the poet's going to be in flow. And he right. said, you know, if you add it up, I'll bet you're going to find a huge chunk of the global economy. And that's what first caught our attention. We expanded the categories out on flow um, and, and looked at it. But there's a lot of really positive. There. There's definitely some negative, And the reason is the same. So when you look under the hood of flow, for example, you see the brain cocktailing three to five to six, depending on on how you're getting into the experience and what's going on of the most potent uh, reward chemicals that exist in the brain. So these are dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, anandamide, endorphins, oxytocin. These are feel-good pleasure chemicals. They're all performance-enhancing chemicals, right? You want to know why is flow optimal performance? You want to know how these chemicals work, among other things. But these chemicals are used performance boosters, but they're feel-good reward drugs. And they feel really good, to put it in context. So when you talk about neurochemicals, they're endogenous, meaning they're internal to the body, right? Every endogenous chemical has an exogenous chemical, right, that basically is a drug that attaches to the same receptor site. So we have endorphins. And in, you know, in the real world, doctors have opiates, right, to kill pain, but the same thing. The most common, there's about 20 different endorphins in the brain. The most common one is 100 times more potent than medical morphine. So when we say the brain cocktails feel good drugs, these are really, really potent feel good drugs. And flow appears to be the only time you get about all five of them at once. So this is, you know, this is one of the oldest findings in flow science is that the experience, when you ask people, what experience do you prefer most on this planet? Flow always tops the list. Mm. And the reason is there's these five addictive neurochemicals underneath. And just to put it in comparison for you. So when you fall in love, a lot of people's favorite experience, that is a cocktail of dopamine and norepinephrine. Those, this is Helen Fisher's work at Rutgers University. Okay. Cocktail of dopamine. Flow gives you norepinephrine and dopamine plus three other reward chemicals possibly four so amazingly potent reward as you pointed out absolutely can lead to addictive behavior right and you see this i'll show i'll give you an example from your community where where, uh where it's an issue is you see guys get off deployment right come back leave the service um especially if they were team guys and switching back to it like they were those are high flow careers you know from reading stealing fire right really high flow careers and for a lot of different reasons and you transition back into civilian life and it's difficult and you people have a lot of problems and you see you know some guys turning to drugs and drink or you see other guys sort of self-medicating in a healthy way with action sports right or things along those lines creativity is actually the best substitute when you're coming back out that uh, as a general rule um risk taking some of that stuff is great uh but cre- if you if you're looking at this on a daily basis creativity 
is, is, is seems to be the most effective thing there. But yeah, so you can get some, you can get some heavy behavior. Um, and you definitely, you know, I always say with flow work, with the peak performance work I do, this isn't really self-help. You know what I mean? Self-help is I'm going to make you, I'm going to improve your life five, 10%. And if I can get that change to persist for about three months, mm -hmm. that's a win. That's a huge, huge win. You've got a billion dollar company there if you want, or a million dollar company. Um, mm -hmm. Flow, you know, you, depends on whose numbers you want to go by, but like motivation, productivity can spike 400 to 700%. Uh, learning rates, this is a Department of Defense study, will spike 240% in flow, sometimes as high as 500%. We see uh, creativity and innovation spike 400 to 700%. Empathy, ecological awareness, collaboration, cooperation, huge spikes in, in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, that's not self-help, right? That's a massive uptick in performance, but it's got a downside. These chemicals are addictive. And if you have a high flow lifestyle and something you're cut off, you're coming down from five very potent addictive chemicals. If you're get stuck, you know what I mean? Writer's block. Writing is a very creative activity. Whenever there's creativity, brain starts linking ideas together. You get pattern recognition, you get dopamine, you can get flow. And writers who get blocked, I can tell you from first day experience, like being cut off from your drug supply. You are, you, it's, Right, so this is, I always tell people with this work, um, and there's certain populations you can't do this work with. You can't do this work with people who have bipolar disorder, for example. Okay. Because, right, because there's dopamine. We're gonna, I will be like, I can massively increase the amount of flow in your life, but it's gonna produce a lot of dopamine. And if you've got mental health issues that are, are built around dopamine, you don't wanna go anywhere near this work. Um, you know, there's other downsides as well. There's tremendous upside, but you have to be careful with this. This is a very, it's a powerful tool. It's not something you really want to take super lightly. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, this is why, you know, you'll hear stories about how Stephen King uh, would snort massive, massive amounts of cocaine um, to kind of get into that state. He wrote, you know, he wrote uh, some of his most celebrated books uh, while he was uh, self-medicating or, or not medicating, but chasing that state with, with chemicals, right? Now, I guess when you get in that zone, when, you, when you're there, um, you, you there are certain characteristics that you talk about uh, with respect or qualities uh, of being in the state. Uh, and I was wondering if you, I think you used the acronym STIR, uh, S-T-E-R. Yes, STIR, this is a commonality. So um, this is slightly different than kind of the, the, the phenomenological description of flow. It's a little more expansive, but we, we were looking at, we were trying to come up with a way to look at all these experiences, these more of the happy experiences, to describe how they make us feel that was not laden with the baggage of any wisdom tradition or anything else right you just okay. like what is going on and stir stands for selflessness effortlessness timelessness and uh information richness the r is for richness and what that refers to is and there's very specific neurological reasons for all these things that we get into if you like but selflessness this means the ego shuts down right? The prefrontal cortex gets very quiet. The self starts to disappear. If this shows up in a low grade flow state, right? Say so you sit down and write that quickie email, you get so focused, right? You really get into it. An hour passes by, you look up and you're like, what the hell happened? And maybe you didn't lose your sense of self, but you had to go to the bathroom and you lost bodily awareness. And suddenly you pop back into consciousness and you're like, oh my God, I got to go pee. Or it's all the way to like, you know, you're in a fight and there's nobody in your head whatsoever. You're just Right, so that's selflessness. We've all experienced that effortlessness. That's the that's all those pleasure chemicals, right? They talk about flow as effortless effort, right? Every decision, every action flows seamlessly, perfectly from the last. That's where it gets settled from. It's it, you feel like you're being propelled by a force that's greater than yourself, right? Um, and where are we? timelessness is uh, for the same reason self disappears because self and time are both calculations sort of performed in the front part of the brain right here and gets really quiet and flow 
for a mm -hmm. lot of different reasons. So we lose our ability to calculate time. So past and present and future, they collapse into what sometimes called the deep now or an eternal presence, if you want to use, you know, the, the more spiritual term for that kind of thing but you're just totally focused in the right here right now there's nothing beyond the present moment and um information richness really refers to the fact that when you're in these states and it varies a little bit depending on the state but most of the brain's foundational information processing machinery is really turned up so in flow for example you take in more uh, information per second so data acquisition goes up you find uh, faster connections between that incoming information, right? And older ideas, so pattern recognition goes up. You can find farther flung connections, so lateral thinking goes up. You pay more attention to incoming information, salience goes up and so, and so forth. Um, and that, in, in fact, uh, we're doing some work with Dr. Andrew Huberman at Stanford and based on some stuff we've been working on together, it seems like, for example, in flow, you tend to have peripheral, you see out of the size of your eyes, you tend to have to look out of your peripheral vision. And when that happens too, this is a, this is a special operator's trick. They know yeah. this, um, right? Look out the corners of your eyes because it dials down fear immediately. It turns on the parasympathetic nervous system. It turns off the sympathetic response, right? Because when there's a threat, you stare at the threat. When you're looking at your peripheral vision, ah, there's no threat. You must be relaxed. So, but what happens when you do that is your brain starts processing information four times faster than normal. So that, you know, it's really, it's really sped up. So the information richness that we talk about is actually like the data processing machinery is going into overdrive, right? right? Turned on the inner AI. So speaking of um, special operators, right? Um, in, in your book, Stealing Fire, um, you, you, can, you talk about how you spend a lot of time with the Navy SEALs um, and particularly uh, SEAL Team 6, uh, Dev Group. And you quote in the book uh, a Navy SEAL commander, and, and I'll read this quote to you. Um, More than any other skill, SEALs rely on this merger of team consciousness. Uh, being able to flip that switch. That's the real secret to being a SEAL. Can you explain what the, what the SEAL commander was talking about? What is the switch? Yes. So he's talking about flow, right? He's describing flow. And so let's come at this from a couple different ways. Okay. Let's start with this, those neural chemicals I listed earlier, right? We could talk about those. So when I mentioned that flow amplifies collaboration and cooperation and communication and all that stuff. Why does that happen? Because all of those neurochemicals, I said, neurochemicals are multi-tools. They do a lot of different stuff in the brain and they do it all at once. One of the things neurochemicals do, especially pleasure chemicals, is they reinforce social bonding. We're mm -hmm. social creatures, right? And I gave you an example of this. I said, dopamine and norepinephrine, that's romantic love. Endorphins, that's maternal bonding mother and child or friendship between adults. You get oxytocin, the so-called cuddle camp, chemical, which is, which is really like tribalism. It's a group bonding mechanism and, um, and serotonin, pro-social common chemical. It means that when a lot of serotonin is in our system and other people are around, we're calmed down. Anandamide makes you more open to other people and their ideas. The point is, so if you've ever, like, for example, when people go on business retreats and they do shit like trust falls or ropes courses, right? right? They're trying to put people into flow to get these same chemicals flowing because it bonds the team together, right? The, this, the, the team guys take it a lot further. Like they, yes, and we call this, by the way, group flow, right? This is a team coming together, right? Individual flow is defined as optimal performance. For an individual, group flow is a team at their best, and it's any team. It's a basketball team in a fourth quarter comeback. It's a great brainstorming session, you know, in a company where the ideas are really bouncing off the walls. It's what the teams experience all the time. And, but what makes it so crucial, and I will argue, though this is a long argument, so you shouldn't ask me about it because it'll take us down a crazy tangent. I will argue this is the reason flow evolved, but um, is it massively heightens nonverbal communication. And, uh, 
So you pattern recognition gets massively amplified. This is a this is based on dopamine and norepinephrine. They they tune signal to noise ratio. So when they're in our system, we notice way more signal than noise. And as a result, you know, if you're trying to communicate as a team non-verbally when you're moving through a hostile environment at night, you know what I'm like, you want pattern recognition massively amplified up. You want to be able to, and you, you want to be able to know what the other guy is going to do before he does it, right? That's how you stay alive in those situations. And especially, you know, because the, the, especially with the SEALs where they're so non-hierarchical in their approach to, you know, missions in combat where the person who knows what to do next gets to be the leader, right? In those situations where it's very fluid and you're switching roles all the time, if you're not in this state, things fall apart. I'll give you, let me, let me give you, a, so flow crosses species lines, lines. It's not a human only thing. And the thing I was alluding to is that we think one of the reasons that it evolved is because humans and wolves used to hunt together. And if you're trying to bring down a massive well, woolly mammoth, Right back in the time before we have penicillin, you get a little scratch, as you know, gangrene, you could lose the arm, you could die. So you can't really screw it up. I have a lot of dogs. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary. We, I, I've lived with large packs of dogs my whole life, and I run with them all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you run with dogs and you're not in flow, you trip over each other. It's chaos. But, draw, but once you drop into flow, everybody sort of gets into formation and sort of stays there. And part of it is this peripheral vision thing we talked about. When you drop into flow, you start seeing peripherally things speed up about four times. You can figure out where the hell people are, right? Like, or dogs. And are, it's the same thing with the teams, right? They're, they're, they need to move together. So all this stuff is incredibly important to, the, to uh, team performances. You know, it's not just the SEALs. I've, I've been, lucky enough to spend a little bit of time with some of the green berets with a little bit of time with the air force and some rangers in the army and you know it's everywhere right you can't you can't you know and in fact i will tell you something funny i was just talking about this yesterday if you go back to the 1950s mm-hmm. and look at flow literature right there this was when the psychologist abraham maslow was working on flow he was calling it peak experiences and there was that side of it the other big volume of flow literature comes out of the combat literature. It comes out of stories from World War II. And I will tell you something interesting, though. I, I, there's, I'd love to do more research on this. There are a lot of flow stories that come out of World War II and World War I, and they die off during Korea and Vietnam. Um, and it, the reason is very much flow follows focus, right? And we right. pay more attention to those things that we believe in World War One, World War Two, everybody was with the mission. Korea, Vietnam, everybody was not with the mission. They had problems with the mission. Um, interestingly, uh, if you know Naval Hariri's work, the guy who wrote Sapiens. Yeah, yeah. yep. So in 2007 or 2008, he actually wrote a great paper on flow and war um, really? as well. Was, I think it's the most recent paper I've ever seen anybody write on flow and war. Like there was a big gap from the 50s forward. Or wherever it was talked about, it's no longer talked about in public. It was just taken out of sight. It could be either or, right? I've got to find this paper. But the Hariri one's out there. Okay. I'd love to, uh, to see that paper. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, I'll search for it as well. Um, but, you know, I've, you know, that flow state, it makes so much sense because, um, you know, if you, if you believe in something, if you're passionate about it, if you're, if you're dedicated, you can, you can, you have a shot of getting into flow and getting into the zone. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. Never, never really would have thought about the fact that in Vietnam and the Korean war that, that, and I can imagine, I can imagine now why in special operations, anyone getting into special operations, especially after nine 11, you have people that are, completely focused on the mission. And of course, they're like the athletes of the military. They're going in for... Yeah, interestingly, so this, I shouldn't even say this out loud, but because it's nothing more than a curiosity at this point. But as you probably know, the incidences of, of PTSD are lower among team members than in other communities in the 
military. Mm -hmm. And there are interesting reasons to think that flow might be a prophylactic against PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do, I mean, once again, it has to do with kind of neurochemicals, but the way we're thinking about it now is the place in the brain where PTSD originates in the amygdala, it, as you drop into flow, it appears that anandamide is released into the amygdala and it basically shuts it down and it extinguishes, it, this is, it extinguishes the ability to create long-term fear memories. And so it's, it, it seems to block it. Um, and we certainly know flow can be used to treat PTSD because there was that marvelous work at Camp Pendleton with, with soldiers uh, and flow uh, uh, that really looked at that question. And that's pretty well established at this point. But it's interesting that it might have a prophylactic benefit as well. Amazing. Um, I'm going to give you another quote um, from Stealing Fire, again, on, on the uh, topic of the SEALs. Um, quoting again, uh, from what you learned from this, uh, you know, from this SEAL commander, this Navy SEAL commander, uh, the ability to shut off the self and merge with the team is an exceptional and peculiar talent. That's why the SEALs have spent several decades developing such a rigorous filtration process. Now, quoting the commander, he says, if we really understood this phenomena, we could train for it, not screen for it. Can you talk about, because this also uh, is discussed in your book with respect to Google and their, their hunt for a CEO uh, back in the day. It turned out that they too were looking to, to find that 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 magical quality, that that mystical quality that you have for those that can get into flow, and they had to do it by filtering through attrition. Talk about that, and why has that been up till now the prevalent way uh, to to get it's, people together it, it, who could be in flow? Because until um, really until the work of, of the guy I mentioned earlier, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was my original mentor, there's a little bit of work prior to that, but we didn't understand the neurobiology of flow. And this, we had a really great, I mean, the psychology of flow people have been studying since the 1870s, right? This is not a mystery. And the, some of the physiology of flow we've been studying since roughly the same time, a little bit later. Um, the neuroscience of flow is difficult. And when you're trying to train flow from the psychology, it's very difficult. It's really, really, it's squishy. It doesn't make sense. It's, you're looking for a state where yourself goes away. I mean, shut the fuck up, right? Like, what, what the hell does that mean? Go away, right? Like, it's, it's crazy talk, in a sense. Um, and if you're at all, like, not open to, like, new age spiritual ideas, somebody comes up to you and goes, dude, you got to let go of time, and right? Like, you're going to punch them. Um, maybe you won't. I might. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, what's ha what changed is... Over the past 20 years, we've decoded the neurobiology of flow. We know where the state is coming from. We know why it's coming. We don't have all the answers. There's still holes in the research. You can drive a bus through. We still argue. We as the, the and my company and we as a community of flow research, we still argue all the time. Um, in fact, I heard yesterday that my, my buddy, Andrew Uberman from Stanford, recently said in an interview, I wasn't particularly pleased about this, but he said, you know, the only thing we know for sure about flow is that backwards it spells wolf. Huh. I don't think that's true at all. Um, what I like to say is where we are with flow is roughly where quantum physics was back in the 50s and 60s. And what I mean by that is we, there were huge things we didn't understand about quantum physics in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but we knew enough to build supercomputers and we knew enough to build particle excel. You know what, I, we could use the technology we just didn't understand everything that was going on. That's where I think we are with flow and flow training. And so, for example, the work we do with the Flow Research Collective, when we put people through zero to dangerous, which is our flagship training, we measure flow pre and post. And pretty consistently, we'll see a 70 to 80% boost in flow. Um, there can be in certain, when you take 
sort of team guys and people who understand high performance at a foundational level, that, that's pretty steady. You can really do that. Most pe other people, you can get that jump, but you'll get a substantial return to baseline. It doesn't actually have much to do with flow. It has to do with other performance qualities, motivation, grit, things along those lines that aren't where they need to be. So they can't handle, handle what flow brings. Um, but you, we see it very trainable, but of, with the seals, especially, um, even, you know, even the teams, they're slow to adopt new stuff. It comes in very slowly, very cautiously. And, um, and you know, it's, it's hard to like, I remember we were, when we were with the teams, we were talking, they were talking about how it took them six years to get permission to take fish oil. <laughs> right. Like something like something that you'd be like, are you like, like what? My wife buys that at the store. Like what? Fish oil? Huh? Right. So trying to do this kind of work inside a machine that's not designed to move this fast can be tricky sometimes. Yes. I mean, but, you know, certainly like everything else is accelerating. Um, you know, now you have you have the mad scientist initiative within the military. You've right. You've got um, the SEALs using the mind gym, which you guys had a chance to look at. Right. Where they're where they're using these different technologies uh, to to kind of more to train to get into yeah, those I, I think we've, you know i think we've come to the i mean we're in the era of cognitive high performance right you can see it in the mainstream with things like mindfulness 55 percent of american companies now have a mindfulness training program of some kind you know mm -hmm. at work you're seeing more and more people having a daily gratitude practice. These are both practices, right, that are designed, mindfulness will train on focus, but they're basically designed to calm the nervous system down, right? This is nervous system regulation stuff that people are starting to do. Flow is where it, you know, it starts getting much more interesting because it's, you know, it's, it's taking it up a couple of notches. Um, and it's getting, it's getting into more into the peak performance side. But I think this is what, this seems to be what's happening. You know, so so this is where things get really interesting, um, and I'll, I'll navigate to that point in a moment. But um, in order in in order to get there, um, we in order to get into flow, again, there's still a lot we don't we don't know, and and you know, there's a lot of accelerating technology and and hacking that's going on around getting us there. But you talk about the four forces of flow that kind of have to be uh navigated uh and and it's funny because in all of these areas we're seeing exponential uh, advances and we're certainly speeding towards a singularity of sorts in these areas you talk about you know those four forces can you psychology neurobiology pharmacology and technology right those are the four four forces well, if you look at the world of altered all, if, all, if you were to like build, like what are the sciences that surround the research on flow and altered states of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Those are the four. And as you pointed out, all are accelerating upon exponential growth curves. And for, for anybody listening who doesn't know what an exponential growth curve is, it's like Moore's law. It means that the, the, whatever you're talking about doubles in power on a regular basis. So computers get twice as fast every year, year and a half because the number of integrated circuits on their transistors double. So there's a whole bunch of technologies that are basically riding on the backs of Moore's law. And neuroscience is riding on the backs of Moore's law. Pharmacology, for sure. I mean, you know, we've all seen, right? We have an exponential problem in the world right now, COVID, and we're fighting with exponential technologies. And, mm -hmm. right, you've got 80, last count, last time I looked, um, there were 84 cures and or vaccines in the pipeline are like already into trials nothing like that's ever happened before in history right mm -hmm. and this yeah. is this is six months after the disease has showed up we've never seen anything like it that same force right is coming is brought being brought to bear on on this work um and it's getting really we're we're really starting to make a lot of progress it's, so so here's the thing and this is what i find fascinating because um, you know, much like uh, that, that concept of a singularity, that concept of, uh, or reality of accelerating exponential uh, growth in technology.
um, these things come at a at a cost, right? To um, what it means to be human, and it's a double-edged sword, right? So to you know to have these advances in psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology, and or to hack it, some interesting things happen. So I'm going to quote from your book here, um, "Stealing Fire" again. Even though a critical mass of the population may be crossing the chasm uh, to say a great awakening uh, and, and incorporating the benefits of non-ordinary states into their lives and work, that doesn't mean this revolution won't cause problems. Historically, every time ecstasis has shown up, it's led to upheaval and misuse. That's because while the insights provided by the four forces may give us a better way to stabilize these experiences and lessen the risk, there will always be those who try to bend them to other ends. So let's talk about the two institutions with the most vested interest in coercion and persuasion today. You bring up the military and, of course, the marketers. Can you expound on, on where this can go? Yeah, so... Let me just, you go into any, start with the marketers. Okay. You, if you put people into ecstatic states, what happens is, you, we see this a lot like in the self-help world, in the coaching world, uh, you see self-help gurus who will, have these huge, huge events where they get, you know, they, the air condition gets turned way up and nobody gets to eat and they stay up for three days and you firewalk and you chat together and you reveal yourself. Blah, blah. They're putting you into flow and then they're going to upsell you. That's what happens. You go to one of these events, they put you into flow. Oh my God. And then you upsell you. Well, let's talk about the problem. When okay. you're in flow, your prefrontal cortex is turned off. This is the part of your brain that does long-term planning and logical decision-making your risk taking is way up. The amygdala, which is where your money fears live, are turned way down. It's criminal to sell people stuff in flow. We were actually talking about this uh, last night. We had a live event and we were joking because um, you know, we literally warned people, we were like, listen people, if you, you're in flow right now, we're about to try to sell you something and know that you're, you're, you're liable to make some impulse buys. So like, I mean, like literally, like, I think you got to talk about it and be ethical around it. And of course, like, you know, as soon as I published Rise, The Rise of Superman, my first book on flow, yeah. literally the, within like three days, the phone rang and on one, one call was the, the military and the other call was from like a big advertising company that, right? Like those were the two calls and right. you know, with the military, it's, it's obvious, but I want to, so let's, let's talk about a couple other things that I think are really important. Okay. Anytime you go into a terrorist training camp, what do you think they're doing? Right? They're altering consciousness, right? To when you, you can, it is easy, flow, these experiences are so powerful. If you're exposed to ideas when you're in these states, um, there, you can be very susceptible. Cults do this, terrorists do this in their training camps. I always, you know, I've, I've talked to a bunch of different people uh, at all over the military about this particular one, which is if you think you're fighting like a hearts and minds, you know, socioeconomic sensual battle with, with, with terrorists, you're wrong. Like that's, those are causes, right. but at a, at, you're fighting against addictive neurochemistry. You're fighting addiction. You can't just solve this problem by addressing socioeconomic concerns. You've got people being put into flow states inside terrorist training camps. They're the most addictive state on earth. You're not just dealing with socioeconomic problems. You've got people addicted to a state of consciousness that they think they can only get this particular way, right? This is not really, I mean, this is what cult leaders do too. It's not like, this is not new information but it, it, it sort of like, it irks me a little bit with the military because they don't, they're, they don't seem to want to accept the fact that there's a deeply psychological component here based on addictive neurochemistry. It's, it's addiction, right? One way or the other, you know, at me High said flow is an addiction that leads, this is the great godfather of flow research. He says it's an addiction that leads forward into the future, 
mm-hmm. rather than backwards like other addictions. And that's because you're always using your skills to the utmost. So you're pushing on your skills that leads places. But, you know, it's still, it's still a very potent addiction. And when you're dealing with, you know, any of those, you know, any of those issues. I mean, the same, you know, the same reason the team guys like their flow and they get out of the service and they have a hard time readjusting to normal life. Don't think it's not going on inside the enemy training camps either. Right. Right. So, okay. So given the double-edged sword of ecstasis or flow um, and the risks inherent in experimenting with it, how do you train for it? I'd like you to talk about your equation, right? So you talk yeah, about... So let's, let's leave the equation. Let me put it because the equation gets complicated. Um, okay. And it'll, let me, let's do it really simply because okay. the equation is a lot harder. Flow follows focus. It shows up when all of our attention is focused on the right here, right now. And what we now know is that flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. How do they work? They drive attention into the now. If I were to explain it more formally, and neurobiologically, I'd say, look, these, these triggers work by either pushing norepinephrine or dopamine into your system are two of the chemicals we've been talking about because they both massively enhance focus, right? Think about romantic love, how much you can't stop paying attention to the person you're in love with, right? That's what norepinephrine and dopamine do to focus or, and or they lower cognitive load, which is all the crap you're trying to think about at once, right? And if I lower cognitive load, I liberated more attention to the presence, and you for attention in the present. So what we now know is that there are 22 triggers for flow. Uh, okay. There are 12 individual triggers. What would take you know what would take to drive you Lawrence into flow or me Steven into flow? Or there are 10 group triggers. What it's going to take to drive us both together into flow, right? Um, and there are probably way more, but that's what we know so far. And um, so when you train up flow, there are some foundational peak performance things you need to know, right? There's, there's, there's some baseline information. There's a general rule, what I'm training people in is, hey, these are the triggers. These are how they work in the brain. These are how they work in the body. These are how, how they use them. And that's a lot of the, of, of the work involved in training flow. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I found actually, and it, you know, and I, I'm sure it could be um, a bit complex for some, but I did find your equation absolutely fascinating because you talk about value equals times i'm sorry value equals time multiplied by reward stroke risk right and that's the that's what that is what you're trying to do is assess choices people wanted to make about do i experiment with psychedelics do it right like all the whole the whole suite of things and that, so that was, that, that was for a broader context. And that was more like a, just a sort of a way to kind of assess risk in your life, not so much training, but yes, um, it is, it's a, it is, it is a gotcha. very, it is a useful formula if you're looking for a way to sort of like, just think about these things. Well, uh, you know, if you're going to continue to look to put yourself in a flow state and you're going to hack the process, you're going to run up against, you know, you, you talk about the hedonistic calendar, you talk about you know, so you, that you don't overheat, you, you know, you talk about how much risk you're willing to take on versus what's the reward, because it, you know, as you said, you know, if you can train for it and you can more easily access those states, then it's just a matter of, okay, you know, you're dealing with some powerful neurochemicals here and, uh, you know, it's very easy to kind of go deep down the rabbit hole. It's kind of like uh, the film, you ever... You must have seen the film Altered States back in the back in the day. Did you ever see Altered States? William Hurt playing John Lilly. And you talk about right, you talk about that. You don't I don't think you mentioned the film, but you talk about the real pharmacological experiments on flow in in uh, Stealing Fire. I highly recommend anyone out there who hasn't read it, uh, read that book. I know we're pressing up against time. Uh, uh, for you. But um, I got two other questions. One, is human performance limitless? So limitless is a really crazy term. I don't know what that, you know what I mean? That's a, that's a big word. Mm -hmm. What I think 
I don't think we've seen anything yet is my point. Uh, I don't know if it's limitless, that's a big word, but uh, we do keep pushing, right? Whenever somebody says it's impossible, I spent my career studying the impossible. Over History is littered with the impossible, right? Those moments of time when the impossible became possible in every domain, um, you see it over and over and over again. And certainly, you know, if you talk to almost any peak performance specialist, they will tell you at the, you know, sort of elite level, at a physical level, everybody's roughly equal. There's always going to be the LeBron Jameses of the world. Somebody who's got, you know, a body that is unlike anything we've ever seen. But mm -hmm. most of it at that level is mental. And we are just starting to scratch the surface on really understanding mental high performance and what's possible. So I don't know if it's limitless, but I don't think we're anywhere close to the ceiling. Excellent. Um, so final question, and this is kind of around because I'm, I keep coming back to it. I'm absolutely um, uh, fascinated with the concept uh, that you raise in, in the book, Stealing Fire, about how it has to be or how up till now it's been screened for. And it, it kind of leads me down a road into this being, there, there being a genetic component to this. So uh, according sure. to the, right? It, so, and, and I want to bring up the, the God gene hypothesis, which was proposed by geneticist Dean Hammer in his book, The God Gene, How Faith is Hardwired into Our Genes. They talk about how spir spirituality has a genetic component of which uh, VMAT2 comprises one, just one component by contributing to sensations associated with mystic experiences, including the presence of God and feelings of connection to by all the way, Do you know what VMAT2 codes for? Serotonin, anandamide, and dopamine, right? That's what VMAT2 codes for. It's, by the way, um, that's a great, Dean's book, The God Gene, is a great book, and he's a brilliant thinker. It's, uh, it seems to be a small, very small component okay. of, uh, of uh, even if you're looking at, like, he was, so he was looking, he was working off of a uh, psychometric instrument developed by Robert Cloninger. Dr. Cloninger is the University of Washington, St. Louis, I believe, um, and that was the first psychometric that could measure spirituality, right? How religious are people? How often do they go to church or temple? How do they, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. It was a, and it was a great diagnostic. It was the first time somebody had really done that in a rigorous way. And it had a genetic component and they started to notice it. And that led to Dean's work, which has since gone on, you know, with flow, for example, your dopamine receptors, how active are they or inactive? And which, you know, determines how much risk you like in your life. Huge, huge, huge factor in flow work. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that come in and there's a bunch of mysteries, but you are right. There's a huge genetic component. We just don't understand it much yet. And it definitely goes farther than, than, than Dean Hammer's work, though it's excellent. Yeah. So this is, this is why we will probably, um, at least maybe until, uh, you know, we get to that vaunted, you know, tw I think it's 2045 singularity, um, you know. If yeah, ever... I mean, if you think Ray's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's a friend of mine. I like him a great deal. Peter's a good friend of mine. I've written books with those yes, guys. Um, and uh, I'm just, I'm just not, you know, I, I just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be that that fast or I don't I think it's going to be a gradual you know what I mean like right. a much more gradual change um and maybe I'm wrong you know what I mean I see Elon Musk make announcements about Neuralink and mm -hmm. I think there's no way that can be true <laughs> that's <laughs> what I think most of the time like and I'm not saying he's lying I just like I sort of know some of the work that it was based on and I think wow that's if we're making progress that fast it's like it's shocking it is shocking, but I guess the whole concept of uh, exponential uh, acceleration is a shocking one to those that are faced with it. And, you know, that that moment comes when the whole world shifts right under your feet. Um, 
So I will tell you something that Ray and I do agree on, and this is the shot. This is the most shocking thing. This is in uh, uh, his amazing Ray Kurzweil's amazing uh, essay, "The Law of Accelerating Returns," which is the essay that became the singularity of his year near, and it's where he laid out kind of his think exponential thinking. And so Ray has said, by the end of the century, meaning. 21st century, uh, the turn of the 22nd century, we're going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change. So that means in the next 80 years, we're going birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice. So let's say Ray's off. I mean, Ray's never off with his predictions, right? He's, he's the reason you can say, hey, it's 2044 and the singularity is going to happen is because Ray never misses. Right, I'm the idiot for arguing with him out loud, but like he doesn't miss. And so, let, but let's say he was off by fifty percent, seventy-five percent, and we experience what five thousand years worth of technical change in the next eighty. I mean, right? It's whatever it is. It's a hundred years of technological change by the end of the decade. And in in my new book with with Peter, Futures Fast, and you think we looked at of the 11 biggest industries on earth and how exponential technology is disrupting them over the next decade. And really like nothing is the same. Nothing at all is, this, is the same. There isn't an industry on earth that's untouched a massive upheaval this decade alone. So it's definitely an exciting time. And it's a really like the thing that is worth knowing about all that is Flow appears to be the only time we can sort of keep pace in this modern world because it allows us to think and perform at speed and scale. Mm. So the normal human brain works, evolved in an environment that was local and linear. So everything, right, it processes information that rate and it's got a lot of blind spots that way, right? So we have, you know, we're blind exponential change, right? And it's, you see it in this country when people are watching the numbers go up and up and they don't understand in terms right. of, you know, people, and it's because it's a doubling, right? That's what exponential growth is, and that's what it looks like. And you've got 14 different technologies on exponential growth curves that are all converging on one another right now. It's going to be an exciting, exciting, exciting decade. And flow allows your brain to keep pace, you can think at scale and at speed when you're in the state. So it's a useful tool in these accelerated times. It is. And, you know, there will, be, there will come a point where hopefully, um, anyone can get into flow based on training and technology. Uh, until then, it looks like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make do with uh, certainly a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the knowledge that you've uncovered and the, the training that you're conducting right now, I believe, with the, the Flow Genome Project. Flow uh, Research Collective. Flow Research Collective. Um, and uh, I, I think that in you know, until then, there will be those that can get into flow more effectively, more powerfully. And, and for those of us looking to work with those individuals, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to screen for it, you know, in, in an yeah, You know, I, it's really, really trainable at this point. It's a very reliable and repeatable experience, I think, at this point. Um, I'm not... I think there are a lot of other ecstasis avenues that are less well understood, but I think we're getting a, a, a better handle on flow. Okay. Um, There's so many people who are working on it and so many keen minds. But as I said, like, we, you know, our, we measure flow pre and post and we're getting a 70, 80% uptick in flow in our, in our trainings. And that's, you know, tens of thousands of people. Okay, great. So um, perfect segue then um, to wrap up the show how does anyone listening to this that is interested in accessing a flow state and getting training, um, how, do, how do they contact you? Where can they find you? Uh, give us some of your links. So uh, flowresearchcollective.com is the collective. All of our trainings are listed there. One thing, I, just for your listeners, if you want more flow in your life, if you go to flowresearchcollective.com forward slash flow blocker, Mm -hmm. That is a free diagnostic. We've kind of looked over there about uh, identified 10 of the biggest 
blockers that most people have between them and more flow. And this is just a free diagnostic. It's been very effective. It'll sort of help you start to steer your behavior a little bit, start to work a little bit with flow triggers. And yeah, flowresearchcollective.com. There's also a ton of free information up there. Videos, okay. podcasts, writings, all that sort of stuff. And I'm stephencotler.com. So either of those places will take you to me and everything you want. Excellent. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, the information and the ideas and the concepts uh, are in, in, incredibly, uh, while complex and broad, you're, you're able to kind of uh, dial it in so that anyone can appreciate this. And it is eminently fascinating. So uh, again, thank you for being on the show and look forward to catching up with you again when your next book comes out. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Appreciate it. Thank you.